Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. Technical editor Dave Rome is with us again from Sydney, along with editor-in-chief Kaylee Fretz, who has relocated this week up to the mountains. And we are unfortunately without our resident pro mechanic, Zach Edwards of the Boulder Gruppetto, who last I heard fell victim to a freak chain waxing accident involving some sort of bubbling slow cooker. So <laughs> we'll see what happened with Zach next week, maybe. How's everyone doing today? I'm doing excellent. I'm a little bit disappointed that I showed Dave Rome my best waxing technique on Instagram and asked him to rate it, and he didn't even rate it. He reposted it, didn't even rate it, didn't even tell me if it was any good at all. Oh, no, no it, got, did, it got a zero, do, which is, that was the rating. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to say, I, I think he found your efforts so, so overly insufficient that he didn't even, that he couldn't even be bothered with rating it. <laughs> But hey, Rude. I gotta say, yours, uh, your product is probably uh, your melted candle straight onto the chain is probably still more efficient than uh, colored wind wax. So anyway, <laughs> uh, let's not let's not go there. <laughs> I tried. I tried my best for you. I did it for you, Dave. Thank Rome. you, Kaylee. I, I didn't clean you. my chain at all first. I just I noticed the candle on with my I chain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know that 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 is Kaylee's best effort. So it's very much on brand. Yep, hundred <laughs> percent. If only there was a hammer involved. <laughs> Maybe there was. You guys might have just missed it. <laughs> That's true. What, what would be even better is you just like dripping candle wax onto a hammer and being like, hey, how's my wax job? <laughs> Maybe that's the next one I'll have Dave rate. I like having Could Dave be. rate things for me on Instagram. Uh, he rated my hammer one time, which is actually like a crescent wrench. Uh, you've done you've done some good ratings for me, oh, actually. Good. Over the, All over right. the, I'll try to score them in future. <laughs> So, so Kaylee, I just want to say that you you asking Dave to rate your your chain waxing job is probably the equivalent of so. Uh, well, for for anyone who doesn't follow Kaylee on Instagram, um, he also runs this event called Secret Grode, where it's basically like a little. <sighs> Kaylee, how would you how would you describe Secret Grode? It's like it's like a alley cat. If you've ever done alley cat, where there's like checkpoints you have to get to, but it's all well, not all, but mostly kind of off road gravel. It's not a race. It's just to like go out and have fun with your friends and you have to do push-ups at every interval and that's good. It's good fun. We haven't done one since the pandemic started, unfortunately, but they're good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you have people do, your followers do on Instagram is, you know, they send you pictures of their gravel riding and you ask them or they ask you to rate their road. It's true. And so I think you asking Dave to rate your candle chain whacking job is probably the equivalent of someone sending you a picture of their bike on a trainer in the basement and asking <laughs> asking you to rate their grode. Zero points for that grode. Zero points. I get zero points for my chain waxing. I accept it. I accept the judge's uh, result. It made me I laugh, though, so well done. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to make you cry, not laugh. Oh. Oh, What's the difference? Okay. You know, let, let's try and keep Instagram to be the happy place. Huh? No crying here. <laughs> Maybe we right? should start the episode. <laughs> let's start the episode. All right, let, let's get into the news. Let's get into the news. So, Dave, I would say a few of our listeners would be surprised to know that you have some quirky habits, uh, and one of which includes now browsing the U.S. Federal Communications Commission website while sipping your morning coffee. And the other day, you found a very interesting application from Shimano. Mm -hmm. What are we looking at here? Uh, there's a new Altegra fishing reel out, which is um, extremely exciting. 
and for that that story, I am so sorry for anyone listening that fell for that joke. It, it got completely out of hand. I didn't expect Google to pick it up and share it in Google News as like a recommended read. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, that was not. It's meant the to number go one story. It was the number one story of all of January. Yeah. yeah. It was just like a cheeky little Friday laugh between our staff, and then uh, it really wasn't meant to go viral. So I apologize, but no. Back on topic. So there was actually some real Shimano news, which uh, stumbled across on yeah their FCC website, which is uh, basically wireless is uh, confirmed. So there's been a lot of rumors about new Durace, uh, I guess, being due. It's it's time that we see a new iteration of it. And there'd been a lot of rumors about whether it'd be wired or wireless for the DI2 version. And yeah, FCC approvals all but confirm that uh, we will see a wireless or at least semi-wireless version of this new group set. So we have talked about this a little bit already over the past weeks and months, and it does sound like it, it does sound more than likely that it is going to be this semi-wireless setup that you had talked about. So what what is the layout going to be as far as we can tell right now? So this is quite speculative, but uh, basically what we're what we're looking at is uh, wireless shifters, or the other rumor is semi-wireless shifters. So the the right shifter is the the master, and the left shifter then plugs into the right. Um, with a with a shared battery, uh, but basically the the sh- from the shifters, um, it's wireless down to the rear derailleur, and it looks like the rear derailleur would be the um, the the other transceiver in the wireless network. So from there, you've got the rear derailleur, which then um, appears to then plug into an external battery, not too dissimilar to how current DI two works, where you might have a battery in your C post, uh, and then that battery would have a second wire running to the front derailleur. So you basically have this small circuit uh, with the yeah the rear derailleur receiving the shift command from the shifters, and then that's sending the signal to the front derailleur if front shifting is needed. And from what we can tell, it sounds like Shimano has laid this out to be pretty flexible in terms of like you know one by or two by drivetrains because if it is semi wireless front and then semi wireless rear, what that would allow you to do is because the right hand lever would be the master lever. At that point, it wouldn't matter if you have a left-hand shifter connected. Mm-hmm. Um, although even with you know with one by DI2 right now, you still have both levers connected. Yeah. Um, but for the rear, if if all the wireless bits are located in the rear derailleur along with the battery, or sorry, not not along with the battery, but if all the wireless bits are included in the rear derailleur only, yep. then at that point, if you plug in a front derailleur, that front derailleur can not only be smaller and lighter and cheaper yes but if it's not there everything still works the same exactly so what is the ad- what is the advantage of doing something like this because you know having an, having built up a whole bunch of sram axis fully wireless bikes what's really cool about that is i mean because it's fully wireless and nothing is really connected at least as far as the transmission is concerned it's super super easy to build and set up and install and with this Shimano semi-wireless setup, we're still going to have to deal with a bunch of wires. So why would Shimano still want to do that? Uh, it's it's a tough one. I mean, SRAM's uh, system is exceptional. You know, as you just said, it's it's super easy to set up. It's extremely reliable. You know, for a while there, a lot of a lot of people would say that um, SRAM's wireless connection was the most reliable, or most reliable running, um, yeah, electronic system, electronic drivetrain on the market. Uh, 
For Shimano, I believe it, it comes down to um, you, you can have a higher battery capacity, so you can have longer longevity between charges uh, and not have to worry about having removable batteries in the process. So uh, there's basically, there's no risk of leaving your batteries behind as you arrive at your ride uh, to find that you've still got your batteries on charge. Uh, but yeah, the, the main idea is that you could have a much much uh, longer lasting battery shared between two derailers um which requires you know far more occasional charging and in turn if say in a in a two by system so with shram you've got um a front derailleur that has its own battery a rear derailleur that has its own battery both batteries are pretty large there's quite a bit of weight there um and you know it's not just the battery weight it's also the the receiver for the battery you've got that clip system you've got the um yeah the modules there so for shimano to then go back to a wide system i guess there is potential to make it lighter as well yeah and i guess you wouldn't have to deal with you know like the biggest headache with wireless is running it through from basically the cockpit area down through the down tube to all the other bits at the other end and this would get rid of that would be which would be nice yeah. but yeah i mean as good as sram access is for all the reasons that you just mentioned i mean yeah battery life is definitely not one of its strongest suits um, and then, um, uh, and yeah, it, it's certainly not a particularly light group set either, uh, certainly as compared to, to Shimano DI2. So I'm, I'm super eager to see what this looks like because it sounds like it really, really could be really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And, uh, what's interesting is there's now a bunch of other patents coming out, which, uh, which we've seen there's been a patent application for like a, a dropper seat post, which, um, an electronic wireless dropper seat post where the dropper post also has its own wireless receiver. Uh, and then again, it also shows that same, um, shared battery system with the rear derailleur. So I actually, I quite strongly believe that this is a, a new ecosystem from Shimano that we'll see where, you know, we might see Durace first, but then we'll see XTR come out and like previous 11 speed DI2, I'm sure it'll all be cross compatible with each other. So, you know, you could kind of do what um, SRAM Axis currently does where you can run like a, a road shifter with a Eagle mountain bike rear derailleur for like an ultimate mullet group set. Uh, I believe that's where, where Shimano is heading with this. Sounds pretty good to me. Mm, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> it does although it, it 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 partially makes me a little bit sad because i do wonder if you know i think we had also been hearing rumors that shimano is just not going to bother with uh with dura ace mechanical anymore i mean the the, the take rate on dura ace mechanical i think compared to di2 it's got to be just remarkably low i mean the, the numbers just have to be skewed really really heavily to di2 yeah um at, at least based on you know sort of what we see out in the field and kind of what shimano pays attention to what they what they devote their efforts to i mean as good and as amazing as shimano dura is mechanical is you just never see it anymore which is just such a bummer no no and price point wise it lines up pretty well with altegra di2 um and yeah yep. you know that's a for many people that's a more easy sell for selling a bike than than specking a mechanical group set so yeah unfortunately i i don't know i haven't i haven't heard anything on that i i don't know for sure whether shimano will remove that mechanical option but i'd say it's a safe bet to assume we will still see a mechanical altegra uh continue because that's just you well, know that's just such a price point thing um yeah mechanical altegra seem definitely seems to be a, a given i mean for Shimano sells so much mechanical yeah. Integra. It's just such a common group yeah. set on road bikes that I, I can't imagine that they would give that up unless, 
you know, unless 105 DI2 were to come, you know, were to exist, first of all, and yeah. to come in at Altegra mechanical pricing and also be at least kind of reasonably reasonably competitive with Altegra mechanical in terms of weight. Yeah. Um, but un unless they're able to do that, I I don't see mechanical Altegra, at least mechanical mid-range group sets from Shimano going away anytime soon. Yeah. That, um, that talk of uh, 105 di2 uh, i guess that's a pretty good segue for uh something else that was spotted on the fcc website yes yes indeed because speaking of electronic versus mechanical group sets one of the things that people have been clamoring for for a very very long time now uh, especially since the advent of axis and how good that's been going is uh for sram to come out with a rival axis version and it sounds like that is now going to happen based on fcc filings so at this point, we really don't know anything about this. What's what SRAM's rival Axis Group might look like, but just based on how SRAM operates, it'd be pretty easy to to guess. I think I think we can have very educated guesses as to what this would be. Dave, you and I were talking. You and I were talking before we started recording that because one of SRAM's biggest strengths is how they are able to trickle down high end technology lower down in the stream. And they do it really well. They do it really quickly. Mm. Um, and basically, the only downside uh, at those lower end price points is essentially weight for the most part. I mean, they, they'll use cheaper materials, and some of that, sometimes that stuff isn't quite as strong. It's like it's like more like fiber reinforced plastics and stuff instead of aluminum and instead of carbon fiber, that sort of thing. But um, I, th I think we can speculate with a fair degree of certainty that rival axis will basically function. I might I would guess exactly the same as force axis. It'll just be heavier which is a little bit of a bummer because yep. i mean force axis is already kind of heavy but what is interesting about this is i'm really curious to see what sram does in terms of the pricing for rival mm. axis because um it's like we were talking just a minute ago about how dura ace mechanical has basically just been entirely killed off by altegra di2 because i mean they're basically the same price and although altegra di2 is heavier you know Di2 electronic drivetrains. They, I mean, as much as I love mechanical ones, even I will be, admit that electronic ones just they just work better. I mean, yep. it's like it's that robotic precision, yep. right? It's like said and know, forget. For the same reason, yeah. It's like for the same reason that I like manual transmissions in cars. I also know that they are, you know, performance-wise, mechanically inferior to like modern automatic transmissions that are in cars. So, with rival axis, if they are able to bring that price point down to say you know maybe what force mechanical yeah. could be or ideally if they are able to come out with rival axis at that uh, at that shimano altegra mechanical price point or at least just get kind of close to yep. it you know that's a price point that sram has been struggling with for a really long time now just because you know as, as much as you know kaylee and, and dave i mean we, we all three of us we really have really loved SRAM's mechanical road drivetrains. From, from an OEM standpoint, they just have not been able to hold the candle to Shimano. They're just consumers, just they just, for whatever reason, they just don't like them as much. Yeah. But if you are now able to possibly get a SRAM wireless electronic drivetrain at a similar price point at Altegra Mechanical, 
that could really change things up. Oh yeah, for sure. And that would allow like, you know, this this whole new generation of road bikes that we're seeing with the, the integrated cockpits and complicated cable routing, that would that would really be uh, a game changer in a sense because you'd you'd now make those bikes more affordable. The assembly of those bikes would be absolutely unbelievably simple. Uh, simple for the shops involved. So I mean there's just there's all these other cost savings and time savings involved that that, that would open the window to. So yeah. Well, and the other thing too is, you know, as much as the bike industry is always trying to get more people to one, get into cycling, but also, especially on the road, given how, given how, you know, refined everything is in the drop bar world. I mean, just, you know, road bikes have been really, really awesome for a long time. And for as relatively young as gravel bikes are, I would say that even those are really, really good already. Like there's just not a whole lot of room for improvement, I think. So, you know, but from the outside, if someone were, you know, maybe kind of considering getting a drop bar bike of some sort and they hadn't really been paying attention, you know, having a, a, a salesperson show them a wireless electronic drivetrain on a bike. And if, if, you know, if they didn't even know that existed, like that would blow their minds. Like that would be super cool. Mm. Yeah. It feels like a huge OE play to me. I mean, yeah, it's going to be popular with people potentially upgrading to it, but it, price point, everything, it feels like a massive OE play. And yeah that is where these companies make most of their money. So it's a, it's a, it's a clever thing on SRAM's part. And we know the technology works. And the nice thing about electronics is as you get cheaper, like you said, that you don't change functionality at all because mm-hmm. the motors are very likely exactly the same. Uh, you just, you know, you get a little more plastic, some worse materials, a little bit more, a little bit heavier. Yeah. But that stuff's that stuff. You could get around that, particularly for stuff like gravel bikes. Like, who cares if your gravel bike is 150 grams heavier? Yeah, and I, I think or, yeah, I think if we see rival, like I'm looking at a, a SRAM Force but ETAP bike at the moment, and there's a lot of carbon in that. You know, there's a carbon crank, there's a carbon derailleur cage, there's carbon brake levers. Uh, rival mechanical versus force mechanical is all about um, alloy, you know, alloys instead of carbon. So you know that's where all the weight came from, but the actual shifting performance is the same and. I reckon that's just probably what's going to happen. I, I don't even know if we will see plastics. I think it'll just be all aluminium stuff, you know, aluminium crank that's machined out. And yeah, so be reliable stuff. Probably not a plastic crank. No, no if, I, no, if I had to no, guess. No idea. <laughs> but I mean, back back in the day, I mean, Rival 22 used to be one of my all-time favorite road mechanical group sets just because it offered such incredibly good value for the performance that you got. And... No, I mean I don't. I absolutely do not expect that Rival Access would come anywhere close in price to what Rival Twenty Two uh, or what a Rival Mechanical no set would be. But again, I mean, Force was pretty close behind on on my you know on my rankings mm-hmm. for you know kind of performance versus value. And if if they can do Rival Access around there, then like I said, I mean you know I think we can all agree that that would that that would make Shimano take a second look pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, that's also something we discussed off camera, which is this is this is a uh, SRAM's mo. You know, they they're in it. they are the disruptor of the market. They'll come out with on the mountain bike. They were the first to go to two by chainring on on a mass scale at least, uh, and then Shimano caught up and did two by, and then SRAM disrupted again by doing the one by, um, and you know Shimano reacts, and Shimano kind of takes two or three years to react, and you know kind of refines and almost perfects the system, but in those two or three years, SRAM just rules the roost and gets all the OEM, um, you know, supply and, and really takes over. And that's, you know, they become the hot, 
the hot product. Um, and that's that's certainly the case right now. If you look at the high-end road bikes, so many high-end road bikes have SRAM Red or SRAM Force ETAP. Uh, and Shimano's kind of missed out on that for the last few years. But, you know, Shimano will jump back at the high end and then SRAM's move is to take that technology to a lower price point. Um, yeah, be interesting to see what happens once uh, once SRAM runs out of price points to trickle down to. What, what, what disruptor <laughs> will be next? Wireless braking. Ooh. Uh, yes, we have talked about that a little <laughs> bit before and... I'm not prepared to have a conversation with that about that right now. <laughs> yeah, no. So, no, thank anyway, you. Anyway, so all of this stuff is super exciting, but of course, I mean, it's really all only meaningful if Shimano and SRAM are actually able to deliver parts. Mm -hmm. And you know, Shimano in particular, I mean, those past releases in recent years have shown that you know Shimano has like oftentimes a lot of issues actually delivering product when they project that they're going to be able to do so. Um, and then, you know, with this COVID pandemic, I mean, that has added just this huge layer of complication on top of all that, where, you know, seemingly absolutely everything is out of stock everywhere. And like, not just components, but like, you know, people can't find tires and tubes and like, you know, like drivetrain, like chains and cassettes. It's like really basic stuff. Mm. And, you know, as, as exciting as this new stuff coming out from Shimano and SRAM is, I mean, it does feel like we are also creating this prime opportunity for smaller brands. I, I would argue that we've already created this prime opportunity for smaller brands to start gaining some more visibility. Um, like, you know, we have brands like, you know, Box and Microshift, stuff like that. Um, and like, you know, like Praxis, I mean, they, they were sort of a, a behind the scenes manufacturer for a lot of brands and they still are um and you know now that they came out with this practice practice aftermarket brand i mean they've been coming you know they've been gaining a, an increasingly large share of drivetrain spec at least for crank sets and you know like rotor with the release of this new aldu carbon crank set that just came out last week i mean they, they you know they've got a pretty enticing catalog of drivetrain parts now too that might see some more oem spec if shimano and sram can't deliver enough volume um, you know, Dave, are you hearing anything on this front? I'm I'm not hearing so much, but I, I'd say I'm seeing it. Like we're we're seeing more and more entry level bikes using uh, alternative branded components. You know, the, the one that you mentioned, Microshift. That's one that I uh, that I have been seeing more and more um, with their Advent group set. You know, it's a really well priced one by group set with some really high quality features. Um, I've been testing it for a while now. Overdue to write that review, but uh, yeah, I think that is a product that we're starting to see more on these sort of sub $1,500 bikes, mountain bikes and gravel bikes. We're seeing it. Um, and I think that's a trend we will see more of because, you know, as you say, the Shimano and SRAM, they have supply issues. They're currently demanding massive forecasted, um, you know, massive uh, delayed forecasting. So, you know, 180 plus days and some of these smaller bike brands may not even have the, the forecasting or the historic forecasting to know how many bikes they're going to sell in you know a year from now or two years from now and that these smaller brands might be a bit more flexible with them um so you know there's there's a few reasons there but uh yeah i think it's it's definitely a trend we'll see more of kill you're really quiet today he's thinking he's puzzling just over here thinking <laughs> <laughs> you guys are covering everything 
Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. I'm I'm just waiting for my ask a mechanic segment. That's I'm just ah, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Sa- no, that's, saving yeah. my energy. Right. That that's which is when we mute Kaylee's mic. Um. All right. Last last bit of news. Wahoo just released a new wired. Speaking of all this wireless stuff, they just released a new wired setup for its latest Kicker V5 hmm. indoor trainer that allows you to connect the trainer directly to your internet router for a more reliable connection. Uh, basically, the issue here is that. Uh, you know, the frequencies that indoor trainers operate at is a pretty crowded space and signal dropouts can be a pretty big issue. I mean, it's just kind of annoying if you're just kind of doing a workout, but if you're trying to do something like a, like a Zwift race or something like that, it could be a huge issue if your signal drops out even just momentarily. Um, so while Wahoo's implementation of this concept is, you know, I would argue it's a little clumsy, um, just, you know, there's like a two piece dongle and it's like, it basically goes from a, uh, you know, telephone jack to a three and a half mil connector to this dongle then you plug in an ethernet cable that goes to your router or your computer which probably doesn't have an ethernet connector on it now anyway Um, anyway so you know again while the implementation of this is arguably a little clumsy i mean the idea is still pretty interesting so that said wireless communication protocols are not exactly my forte so uh, to get a little more information on this situation i dialed up indoor cycling guru shane miller aka gp llama of youtube fame uh, to get his take on what's going on here so let's take a listen to that and chat about it on the other side Today with the Nerd Alert podcast, we have special guest, the GP Llama himself, Shane Miller, all the way from Australia. Shane, thanks for being on the show today. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Shane, you recently did a video diving super, super deep into Wahoo's new Direct Connect dongle here, and it became very clear very quickly that I was very, very out of my element as far as this sort of thing goes. So. I figured we'd bring you on today and kind of just go through some of the nuts and bolts about what is going on with connectivity and, and connections and communication with indoor trainers. So first and foremost, what exactly is the problem with wireless connections as far as indoor trainers and something like Zwift is concerned? Yeah, perfect topic for a Nerd Alert podcast, definitely. I went super deep with this one on my video. Look, the problem people are having is that smart trainers and most other peripherals we have use Ant and Bluetooth that operate in the unlicensed and overused 2.4 gigahertz frequency range. Now, 2.4 gig at home is very, very busy. It's a noisy frequency. It's used by older Wi-Fi, cordless phones, garage doors, baby monitors, and even your microwave oven cooks food at 2.4 gigs. So I've got a rule in the house here that if I'm doing any testing, nobody can use the microwave oven because I get dropouts. Now, this technology is designed to coexist with other devices, but just like an eight-lane freeway designed to handle multiple vehicles, sometimes there's a traffic jam. You just cannot squeeze enough things down that frequency that, uh, that it can actually take. So noisy wireless environments like home cause data dropouts for sports tech, and that needs to be real-time data, unbuffered, and a live feed. So you might be able to tidy up your Wi-Fi at home and that environment of you know, switching off your Google devices and your phone and your Bluetooth and everything you're not using, but your neighbors will have a microwave oven right up against that wall. They'll have a baby monitor. So the wired connection eliminates all of those issues, but it can introduce a few others. With this wired connection though, one thing that I'm curious about, you know, Wahoo Solution, they, they basically eliminate the wireless connection between the trainer and your wireless network, essentially. You just plug it directly into your router. 
They're also giving you they're also giving you the option, however, of plugging it into the Ethernet port of your computer also. How exactly does that solve anything? What? So in my video I described yeah, in full detail, in full nerdy detail of how this all works. Even whether you can plug it directly into your computer on an Ethernet port, it still uses the network stack to communicate. So what you're effectively doing is creating a secondary small network of two hosts. Your computer will still talk over IP to your trainer. So it's really no different than hooking it up to your router or anything else. So the two ways that it does connect, either directly to your router or directly to your computer, at a technical level, it's exactly the same way they connect. Cool. Um, a lot of people have asked, why, why is this different to the CompuTrainer? Um, because back in the day, we used to plug our computrainers into the serial port and away we go. However, this, that's a direct connection. And this is a, not a direct connection at all because serial connection requires drivers, requires support from the device. Um, it just It's really, really hard to plug something into an iPhone or an Apple TV these days without a ton of other hurdles jumping through. So it's never going to happen. Um, other trainers like the Kinetic R1 smart trainer has a USB port. That's a direct connection. That's never been supported. This one, it's Ethernet connected, so it's more globally supported or will be in the very near future. Yeah, and I guess one thing that people seem to forget with CompuTrainer, which, I mean, I, I'm old enough to have used that quite a bit, is, you know, with the CompuTrainer, you did have to crack open your PC tower and, like, you know, drop in your your dedicated CompuTrainer card, and, you know, that that's how you plug the thing in. So it wasn't exactly quite plug and play. Yeah, and you're never going to be able to plug a device, as I said, in, a, a device directly into any of these new devices. Everything we unbox these days from your Sonos, from your Google Home to your Alexa speaker, all those things, they're all Wi-Fi connected. And Wi-Fi isn't something that Wahoo are unfamiliar with. The original element, the Bolt, the Roam, all has Wi-Fi. Then you watch, has Wi-Fi. So I think soon we'll see, not Wi-Fi as we know it at the 2.4 range, but up in the 5 gig range where things are a little quieter, I think we might see these trainers evolve to that and get rid of the wire. I think this is a stopgap. Well, so so I guess that leads into my next question then. So given that a lot of people do have these issues with dropouts, with signal dropouts on wireless connections with indoor trainers, which oftentimes comes at a really inopportune time when you're like right in the mm -hmm. middle of a key point in your workout or race or whatever. <laughs> if, if a wired connection is a solution that can presumably eliminate these dropouts, why would it then be a stopgap? Why why wouldn't more people try to go with a hardwired physical connection instead of going to a different network frequency like you're talking about here? Good question. I think uh, not many people will have have an Ethernet cable in their house. Not many people will have an Ethernet port to even plug into. I think most homes these days are all wireless. Uh, so it's just not going to be a thing. And as I said before, everything you buy these days does not have a wire to plug in. Even charging our iPhones these days, you don't even plug anything into it. It's all wireless. So whilst wired is a good solution and probably I wouldn't call it a perfect solution, it's going to be great for what it needs to be. I don't think it's going to be the end game here though. I think moving things up into the five gig range or maybe the next frequency that isn't busy, that is more reliable. Um, look, to be honest, people are saying it's not secure enough, it's not fast enough, but I think it's secure enough, it's fast enough, it's reliable enough for the purpose because we're not really doing internet banking on our smart trainers. It just needs to connect reliably enough. And I think 5 gig Wi-Fi is reliable enough. We're speaking over it right now. And as far as I know, there's no one hacking our phone calls. So as far as I know. Uh, yeah, let's not talk about the government. No, <laughs> but they don't really care about how much, they don't, they don't care about our what's we're doing indoors. Right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well, cool. Shane, that sounds like a really good rundown of sort of what we're talking about here. Thanks so much for the time. Yep, no worries at all. And uh, thanks for having me on.
All right, so if Shane is right, I mean, this wired setup from Wahoo is basically just a stopgap, uh, and we may or may not see something similar from other brands. I know it's been a, a topic of conversation for other brands, um, and we're basically on the cusp of every trainer brand making the shift from the 2.4 gigahertz frequency to the more stable 5 gigahertz ones. Um, you know, and this sort of thing isn't really going to be an issue for people in more suburban environments, but you know, if you live in a big, tight, tightly packed apartment building and, you know, someone fires up their microwave, then you know, this could be a really good development moving forward, but it might also be a little ugly in the interim. The question I have is, can my microwave run Zwift? Cause my microwave's got a lot of Watts. It's got like a thousand Watts, just run it straight thousand Watts. That is a good question. Well, if you look at the back of your microwave and you find an ethernet port back there, <laughs> then potentially, potentially what well, I'm thinking, what you could maybe do is, you know, plug that into the ethernet port and then mm. maybe put like a, you know, put like a like a cadence sensor in inside on the turntable thing, and then somehow hack it so you can get the turntable to turn at ninety RPMs, and then you <laughs> might be onto something. Uh, I was just thinking though, like you know, I don't Zwift race because you know, like outside, but um, <laughs> uh, but for those that do, how much would it suck for you to go to all that trouble of mechanical doping and you know fake your way in and all these other things to then have like someone's electronic blinds from above you screw up your whole race like just for all that cheating to go to waste so i don't know i just um this thing yeah i really i, I have like a life goal cap. to never end up i have a life goal to never end up on the uh banned from zwift list that we that we see pop up every once it's in a, a while. good life goal yeah it's just a bad place to be yeah it's a good life goal yeah uh, speaking of which, actually, we we have a, st a story on two more Zwift cheaters. Uh, went up on what was it, U.S. Monday Night, written by Matt Deneef. Go check it out. Uh, yeah, two more two more women busted and banned from Zwift for six months for messing with their data, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, which is apparently something that happens on a somewhat regular basis. And one of them has apologized. Actually, she put up an apology on Instagram. The other one has not. So just a, just you know, a little word of warning out there to all of our listeners. Uh, if you're considering cheating in a Zwift race, uh, you may want to never ride your bicycle ever again because <laughs> you are a sad excuse for a human being. Don't do that. Do not cheat on Zwift. That's pathetic. And we'll write about you. If you want to get your name in Cycling Tips, that's a good way to do it, actually. Because <laughs> oh, oh, we will name and shame you oh, for what you have my. done. <laughs> well, speaking of Zwift cheating, uh, you will want to stay tuned and, and make sure you, you catch next week's regular Cycling Tips, pod, uh, the weekly podcast, uh, just because uh, our new tech writer, Rona McLaughlin, who is not only... Uh, a former Everesting record holder, but also is quite the Zwift racer himself. Uh, he is going to have a chat with uh, our internet famous friend, Robert Chung. Uh, and he's going to be discussing some of the ins and outs of Zwift cheating as far as how it all works. And maybe not go into a lot of details on how they are detecting Zwift cheaters, because then that would give more information for how to get away with it. But we will have a little bit more info on this next week on the regular cycling tips weekly pod so yeah stay tuned for that that should be pretty interesting i will say that zwift cheating is like 
intellectually it's a fascinating topic it really mm. is like from from a from a cultural perspective from a human perspective from a technological perspective it's just a wild new frontier of uh absurdity but yeah i like i like digging into it cuz it it is it's just it's got it's got a bit of everything it kind of when I, when i hear us with cheating i kind of think of like someone going to the gym and bringing their own weights to the gym that say like you know 40 pounds when the weights are actually only like 10 pounds each and just like loading up the bar <laughs> and just like, you know, just letting everyone in the gym think that you're lifting, you know, what? 400 that's pounds when it's it actually is. like 100 pounds. Um, that's what it is. That's kind of yeah. what Zwift cheating is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. It's among, it's among the most pathetic things you can do on a bicycle. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. So don't do it. I think... Kaylee, I think at some point we should get on some sort of like a like a psychologist or something like that to maybe talk about, yeah, the, the psychology of cheating in this way. Like, you know, why do people cheat? What motivates people to cheat? Even at something like this. Mm. So yeah. I think that would be a fascinating conversation. Yeah. So I think we should we should look into yeah, that. Yeah, so where, where there's no financial any, incentive. Anyone, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, Sometimes if there anyone, is. If anyone is listening to the podcast right now and either is either, you know, well-versed or an expert on this sort of thing or know someone who is an expert on this thing and would be willing to talk to us please get in please get them in touch with us or get in touch with us yourselves because this is something that we would love to know more about just the psychology of cheating so anyway all right with that i think we're going to wrap up the news now we're going to move on to ask a mechanic Mm -hmm. We don't have our pro mechanic here, but we do have myself and Dave, and then we have and me. I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. I'm ready. Yep. Yep. Got my hammer. Got your hammer. Got my candle right. wax. <laughs> we are going to dive right in, starting with our friend Paul Dutton, who would like to know what sort of maintenance he should do on his bike if it is permanently on a smart trainer. This is a particularly interesting question because uh, our European contributor, Jose Ban. Uh, she has this issue not too long ago where she had her old Trek, uh, I think it was a Domani. I think she had her older Trek Domani, her older Trek Domani basically permanently mounted on a stationary trainer in her home. And it basically just never left. And she noticed not too long ago that there was a bunch of rusty water dripping out of the bottom of it, which is interesting because it doesn't rain inside of her house, <laughs> which means that all that water was basically sweat. So mm. Paul, essentially what you need to watch out for is, I mean, and, and I, I certainly encountered this a lot uh, when I was a bike shop mechanic, particularly with triathlon bikes, those were ridden outside even. Um, but essentially what you want to look out for is if you are not regularly keeping your bike covered while you are having these indoor training sessions, you are dripping an awful lot of really, really caustic, salty water onto your bike. And if you're not being careful about it, if you are not periodically taking that bike off the trainer and washing it and you know performing some maintenance on pivots and stuff like that, you're basically just dunking your bike in salt water and it's just corroding away. Yep. Yep. Uh, to add to that, so yeah, like... Uh... Wash your bike is is the main thing because yeah you will eventually see paint bubble and all sorts of horrible stuff. Um, very common for headset bearings to rust from that. 
and bar tape to go manky to the point that there's like salt crystals rusting away your handlebars underneath um so yeah washing your bike will avoid all this disgusting stuff uh on top of that then just chain maintenance like obviously you can ignore your brakes because they're not being used but um chain maintenance and bottom bracket bearings as well will wear out um in a a similar way to how they will outside it's just you're not getting uh contamination on them as much as you would outside so yeah so it's a good it's a good idea to keep you know i can't remember you know there's a, a variety of brands that make these make these things but you know pretty much every company that offers an indoor, indoor trainer has some sort of like sweat net thing that basically like straps around the seat post and then goes up in sort of like this y-shaped thing or a triangular shaped thing up to your handlebar to try and keep a lot of the sweat off of your bike directly um so if you don't have one of those i would get one of those right away and if you have been riding on your bike indoors all this time and it's just and sweat's just been getting on there i would get that bike and wash it right away take a look at some of the stuff and you might want to pull your crank and see what's going on in there because that could be kind of ugly. Uh, but yes, absolutely. The handlebar thing is something that a lot of people don't think about because um, especially if you've been on that bike for quite a while, I mean, the way I always like to put it is if you, especially if you don't ride with gloves, but if you've been, if, if that handlebar tape is on there and, and has or has been on there for quite a while, it's basically the equivalent of wearing the same pair of socks over and over again for like however long you've had that handlebar tape on there because your hands do sweat. Um, and yeah, I mean, your your handlebar can literally corrode away into powder underneath that tape. Yep. So keep all that in mind. Just because it's inside does not mean that it's maintenance free. Yep. Uh, James, any thought about like chain lubes for indoor use? That's getting probably a bit too <laughs> I mean, specific, but... Citronella. Uh, scented. I really like cinnamon. Yeah. Cinnamon smell. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, this does seem like overkill, but depending on where, Paul, depending on where you have your bike set up, I mean, if it's in the garage or something, then, and you're not really worried about dirt, then you can kind of use whatever lube you want at that point, because you're not, you're not really going to be getting any kind of grime or dirt or anything on that chain. Um, but if it's indoors in like a finished basement or your living room or whatever, something like that, then you, know, you may actually want to consider doing like a pretty deep clean on your drivetrain and you may actually want to consider doing a chain wax treatment just for the cleanliness factor um but otherwise you can just use a, a you know a decent wet lube and you know, just do a proper mm -hmm. lube job on it and you know apply it sparingly wipe off the excess and just kind of keep it clean yeah um but that that's probably what I would recommend at that point. Yeah, I'd say like just yeah, if you're going to use the drip on lube, just use a little bit of it. So you know, too much will actually spray. You'll get like little splashes of of oil everywhere, and it can be really messy. So just use a, a rag to get off the excess. And then I the waxing thing is actually really interesting because the waxing actually does chip off if you use it indoors. You'll see all these wax flakes everywhere, and you kind of need to vacuum them up. So. Um, yeah, it's waxing's got its benefits, but indoors you just you know probably keep the vacuum nearby if you're going to go that way. All right, moving on. Brian Sharp, he has a headset that loosens up just a little bit on every ride, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. So he is running a Chris King threadless headset and an Easton stem. Uh, he's gone with him without carbon paste. He's even tried slightly tightening over spec on the stem clamp bolts uh, on the stem clamp bolts. And he said, everything works fine on the stand and on the floor, but once he hits a few bumps while riding, it loosens up. And he did provide a picture of what looked to me like a quite insufficient looking expander plug. Dave, what is your recommendation here? A uh, different expander plug would be 
would be the recommendation. So, uh, yeah, I think you and I have both covered this in the past, but basically you want that expander plug to perfectly overlap with the, the stem clamping mechanism and ideally even go down as far as like the, the head, the top headset race, um, for proper reinforcement, but few do that. But yeah, if you can, if you can basically reinforce the steerer tube to not compress where the stem clamps, then you'll, you'll probably have a, a much better day. Yeah, because here's the thing with carbon fiber steer tubes. <clears throat> here's the thing with carbon fiber steer tubes. Carbon fiber is exceptionally strong and stiff when the fibers are in tension. Um, but when you have something like a tube that is being clamped, essentially what you have at that point is everything is in compression and carbon fiber is not very strong in that sense at all. So if you don't really well, uh, if you don't reinforce it really well from the inside, then it basically makes it so that when you are tightening up those stem bolts, the steer is squishing a little bit underneath it. And at that point, you just you just don't have a secure, as secure a clamp as you really should. So I think once you get a better expander plug in, in there, um, Pro makes one that I actually really like. It's it's particularly tall. It's 50 millimeters long. Mm -hmm. and it, it goes through the whole the whole length of the uh, the, the stem clamp area, and then it, it does in a lot of cases go down into that upper headset area like Dave was recommending. Um, but if you can find a pretty long uh, um, steer expander plug, then that would definitely be my recommendation. And my guess is that that would fix the issue right away. Yep. Um, unrelated, I don't think it'll actually solve the issue here, but it's a bit of a cool pro tip is to actually the the headset compression bolt, so the preload bolt, uh, put a little grease underneath the bolt head. Um, It'll stop rust, but it'll also actually lower the amount of torque required for a given clamping force. So you'll get more preload without having to uh, tighten that bolt as much. Yeah. Hot tip. Mm. Um, Chris Stocks has been looking at replacement rear derailleur pulley wheels, and he is coming to the conclusion that aftermarket ones are not only less expensive, but potentially better. And he would like to know our thoughts on this one. I'm assuming he's not talking about ceramic speed pulley wheels. I'm guessing not <laughs> when he said that they're less expensive. Yes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this is funny because this this is something that's come up you know, like forever. I mean, because I this is something that I I remember dealing with in like really really early days of you know being a bike mechanic and stuff like that. Um, because yeah, I mean the the OEM ones like the the you know, Shimano actual pulley wheels can be kind of expensive. Um, same thing with, you know, SRAM or whatever, and you can buy these really cheap machined aluminum pulleys with sealed cartridge bearings in them online for like next to nothing. Um, and yeah, it does seem like those might be better, but one thing that I noticed after a while is that aluminum pulley wheels actually wear faster than plastic ones, uh, is that, that seems to be what I had found because, you know, the, the plastic ones, they, you know, they, they they almost kind of like seem to like sort of squish and deform in some little small way when, when the chain's running across them, as opposed to the aluminum ones that when you have aluminum on steel, it just kind of like wears away. Um, and I've also found the aluminum ones are also a little bit, a little bit louder too, uh, which may not seem like a big deal, but if you like a particularly quiet drivetrain, then it does add up to a little bit of noise. So, uh, you know, I don't know if the aftermarket ones are better because even though those are going to have cartridge bearings and stuff, I mean, there's no saying how good those seals are in those cartridge bearings and, you know, they might look nice, but I don't know if they would actually be better in all the cases. Yeah. That's, that's my point was, uh, the noise. So they, they, they definitely, uh, you know, uh, friction facts it was, uh, tested this and found that pretty much all stock 
uh, pulley wheels, regardless of what real level they're at, do roll slower than something like, you know, a ceramic speed pulley wheel or or a, a similar product with like, you know, very low, low friction seals and a nice bearing inside. Um, but I believe that's kind of intentional because it means they're lower maintenance as well. But uh, but suddenly the big thing here is noise. If you're going to go to an aftermarket pulley wheel made of metal, um, it's pretty much guaranteed it's going to run louder than a stock Delrin pulley wheel. Kaylee? Yeah, so if you're, Chris, if you're going to look at aftermarket pulley wheels, uh, I don't know if you'll be able to find them, um, but if they if you can find an aftermarket pulley wheel that does have, uh, that does, or uh, if you can find one that is made out of Delrin, uh, that would be our recommendation. Uh, Enduro actually makes a really nice pulley mm. wheel that's made out of Delrin oh, yeah. with a, a really nice bearing, but those are not going to be inexpensive. Um, but if you want something that's going to last a really long time, like those Enduro pulleys with the, with those high-end bearings are going to be a good choice. Uh, yeah, my, my only two cents to add to this is do beware of like super cheap pulleys you might you know pick up on eBay or something like that. Uh, you could get you can get a bit of play into those, and that really messes with your shifting. Uh, I've only had it happen. Only, like, I think I had a set a couple years ago that this is the only time I've ever had it happen. But there was just they just never like the, the bearings weren't very good. They just sort of the fitment wasn't good. There was just a little bit of play, and particularly if there's any play in that upper pulley, it it just completely wrecks any sort of sh- crisp, crisp shifting that you're trying to go after. So do beware of like the five bucks on ebay kind of pulleys you probably want to you want to invest and and going the other way sometimes they can be um some of these newer ones can be too stiff even and they they kind of give like this rigid harsh feeling shift as well so it kind of yeah either way you're you're probably not going to get as great shifting as as what you get from the the original pulley wheels yeah i feel like there's something about the there's something about the plastic Mm. that like just kind of like dampens the shift yeah it almost like damp it. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It like almost dampens the shift. I've I've never I've never gotten on with aftermarket pulleys. To be perfectly honest, like I, I I have not liked any of the oversized stuff that I've tried. Mostly from a shifting perspective, I don't, I don't really know whether it was making me two watts faster, one watt faster, or whatever. But just from a shifting perspective, I just none of them I've ever used were as good as just a stock SRAM or stock Shimano pulley. Yeah. So take that uh, for what it's worth. I, I dare say Shimano and SRAM might actually know what they're doing here. Hmm. Yep. Um, Interesting. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Uh, Matt, I am going to butcher your last name. Uh, Knodler or Nodler? I don't know if that K is 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 silent or not. A Knodler? Anyway, it's not Knodler. It's definitely oh. not Knodler. I'm sure. But um, I'm I'm my guess. My guess is that that may have been a. That may bring up bad memories for our friend Matt here. Oh, so sorry, we're, Matt. We're, we're not gonna we're not gonna call him that. He's not a canoodler. Uh, He's a canoodler. No. Anyway, <laughs> he has noted that you can not only can you, but it's very common to see that you can mix and match brands of drivetrains and brakes on mountain bikes, like say a Shimano drivetrain and SRAM brakes and vice versa. Uh, but you don't you can't really do that on the road because of those integrated levers. Uh, and particularly since Shimano and SRAM use different brake loads. Uh, so which should he choose for gravel? This is basically a Shimano versus SRAM question here, although you could go with Campagnolo now too. Are we talking just in like brake performance? Is that what he's concerned about? or or? It sounds like he's primarily concerned about brake performance and then everything else everything else would kind of come after that. But because you cannot mix and match components like that, then you're kind of locked in. So he's kind of no, he's kind of wondering, He's kind of wondering which way we think he should go. 
Mm. I think it's a personal preference thing, yeah. right? I mean, so so SRAM and Shimano have very different feel. Uh, Shimano tends to be a bit kind of like they bite harder. There's a little more powerful. Uh, modulation is therefore a little bit less, right? Because if they're going to bite harder, then you have a little bit sort of less lever play to 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 use essentially when you're when you're actually breaking. SRAM is the opposite. SRAM has better modulation uh, and a little bit less sort of like total bite or total power, at least in well, my like experience. The, the power is not as obvious anyway. Mm. Yeah, it's, power is not even really the right word. Like, you know, bo- both of them are easily going to lock up front or rear wheel anytime you want them to, if you really want them to, right? Uh, but the difference is the sort of like the amount of, of lever travel that you've kind of got in that space there. Uh, so personally, I'm a huge fan of SRAM brakes for sort of road and gravel applications, basically applications where there's not a lot of tire traction uh, because I like the additional kind of modulation there versus just the sort of high power Shimano. And on the opposite end of that, like I love Shimano mountain bike brakes because I kind of just want a fistful of brake whenever so I want. Plus, so much power. Yeah, and I run like, I'm running Saints, like Whoa. massive, massive like downhill brakes because I've got 2.5 inch tires and I want, to be able to control that tire and its interaction with the ground as best I possibly can. And that means I need a lot of power whenever I want it. That's not true when you've got a 28 mil road tire, right? You don't, you don't need that grab. So that's my personal preference. I think people kind of go back and forth. I think almost everybody I've ever spoken to has, has a preference kind of like that, that usually switches back and forth. Like they like SRAM for one and, and Shimano for the other. Where, where, where do you guys fall on that? I mean, for, for, for gravel, uh, I, I'm, I, Kaylee, I think you and I share very similar opinions on this because I don't run Saints on my mountain bike, but I do run XTR four pistons on my mountain bike with 203 mil, with the 203 mil front rotor. Um, and I'm not particularly heavy, neither are you. Uh, like, I think we're both around the, you know, 65, 70 kilo range or whatever. Just about that. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Um, but yeah, gra- gravel tires are not very wide and there's not a whole lot of traction. So I, pr- I particularly don't always prefer to have a lot of initial bite. So on that, I prefer to have uh, something more like what SRAM does for the kind of a little bit more of a gentler feel initially. Um, but one thing that maybe you might also want to consider, Matt, is I don't know what, I don't know what your budget is. I don't know what availability is like for whatever bites you're looking at or whatever parts you're looking at. But uh, that new Campagnolo Eckhart group is, you know, the brakes on Campagnolo's disc brakes are awesome. I mean, they, they were developed by, uh, by or in conjunction with or whatever, uh, with Magura. And Magura's mountain bike brakes are actually pretty exceptionally good also. The modulation on those is really, really good. The lever, lever feels really good. Um, as far as drop bar hydraulic brakes go, I think Campagnolo is still my favorite. Uh, SRAM is probably second for me and Shimano's probably third, but it's not so much because any of those is worse than the other one. It's just more a matter of personal preference. Yep. Yeah. And unfortunately there's not really a lot of ability to kind of change that. You can do some things with pads and stuff like that, but there's not, yeah, there's not a whole lot of way to you know, increase the the sort of soft entry to a Shimano brake or increase the sort of outright quick power of a SRAM brake. They're kind of, it's kind of just the built into the design. Uh, I will, I will second the Campagnolo uh, recommendation. I haven't spent a ton of time on any of the Campy disc brake stuff, but I do, I have ridden them a couple times and, and every time I get on it, I'm astounded with how quickly I get used to it, which is, I think says a lot about 
how good it is and also just how much I end up liking it. So yeah, they're definitely, so good. Definitely, so good. definitely plus one on that. Speaking of breaks, Josh Owen Morris just bought a pair of used TRP high road calipers. These are uh, mechanical to hydraulic sort of hybrid calipers. And he got a big splooge of salty mud right in the middle of a caliper during a ride and one piston seized shortly afterward. You would like to know if this is normal. Hmm. I would say not. No. No. Uh, <laughs> nope. No, I haven't had such issues nope. before. Piston uh, seizing is not a good thing. Yeah, so I mean without knowing really the history of how these calipers were used or anything. I mean, I I've, I've used high road calipers quite a lot over the years, uh, especially earlier on. Um and I raced on high road calipers and cross for for quite a bit. Um you know, whatever granted we don't see a whole lot of mud here in Colorado, but um I, I would say that you know, those calipers may just be due for a service. So one thing you could do is just pull the pads out of those, out of the thing, clean the caliper up as best as you can. And then one thing you could do, uh, and this is kind of a, a handy thing for the high road, since it's a, a hybrid system is you can basically just pull the caliper off your bike and you can manually actuate it and start advancing those pistons. And you can do that, uh, as you advance the pistons, the, the seals will start to get, you know, kind of lubricated with the fluid that is inside there. And it kind of gives you a little bit more access to the, to the sides of the pistons so that you kind of clean everything off. So I would try to do that because it sounds like something's kind of gummed up in there. Yeah. I wonder if, um, either when this event occurred or beforehand, before he bought the brakes, perhaps they'd been run, uh, <clears throat> with the, with the pads very worn down for quite a while because that, obviously exposes the piston mm. uh and that's that's the only way you're going to get like mud and stuff stuck into the piston is if you've got a fair amount of pad wear so first and foremost if you haven't done it already go replace those pads uh and i think that you know make sure that you're keeping an eye on those and don't run them all the way down to the backing plate because when you're getting anywhere near that you're, you're just exposing those pistons uh in a way that is not really very good for them yeah and the other thing is if you are riding in a lot of mud with, and this goes for any disc brake um, although it seems like those pads should wear very evenly, that's not usually how it goes. So the pads will generally wear somewhat unevenly, especially depending on how you have them set up or how you have the caliper adjusted. And if the pad starts, if the pad is quite worn and if it's worn quite unevenly, then that starts to put some, some side loading on those pistons as you would, as you pull the lever and that can kind of cause them to bind up a little bit too. So I would take a look at all that. Yeah. Just as that I'm, I'm firstly, I'm surprised that Kaylee actually had something useful to say there, but, um, <laughs> uh, but also, um, yeah. So, so first what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to just tap it lightly with a hammer yeah. and then you're going to want to hit it harder hammer. and harder and harder with a hammer. Until but it no, goes back it's, to where it's um, supposed to, be. to go back to James's point with advancing the pistons, um, use a cotton bud to get in there to help clean it out. Like a really, like a fine point in cotton bud, the type that your doctor says definitely don't stick in your ear. Um, and then, uh, yeah, isopropyl alcohol is sort of the right fluid if you need something to, like a, a very light solvent to help you clean it. Um, and yeah, that, See, that, that applies with any disc brake, really. That sort of piston maintenance. Um, honestly, if you're, if you're often riding in muddy conditions, it, it applies to everything hydraulic. See, Dave, I'm not actually an idiot. I just play with I know, I know. <laughs> Sometimes I can redeem myself. Like one out of ten episodes, I think is really my going rate at this point yeah. in time. It's a good That's hit, right? a particular. I've run. I've run into that problem myself. Yeah. So I had something useful to say. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll take All this right. chance to point out that Kaylee was actually one of the first people 
Perhaps the first person in the world to actually publish a story about the benefits of chain waxing, which he did for Velo News, uh, which then sent off basically the very early, uh, yeah, the very very early uptake of, of chain waxing. Um, so I yeah, basically started this. You're welcome. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> so Kaylee, uh, so, so ironic, so ironic. Mm. So Kaylee's not uh, completely uh, ignorant to to the benefits and all that. It's just. Uh, yeah, he likes to pretend so. <laughs> it, it's it's not that he's ignorant. It's more that he just doesn't care himself. I Correct. Just, I just really don't care. Correct. I just really, really, really don't care. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> I have Zach to care. Zach cares so much. Yeah. He cares. He cares yeah. so much. Like I bring my bike in, and he's like visibly sad. Yeah. At what it looks like, and then he. he does it for me because he he cares about it and i just want to ride as long as it doesn't make noise i'm happy that's the only thing that that is the only thing that i will like i go absolutely ape if my bike is making noise i will fix it otherwise eh, it's fine Mm. well i don't know what you're gonna do about the whole zach thing i mean after the whole slow cooker slow cooker incident i mean he might not be able to help you anymore so (laughs) we'll have to check in with him on that he's in a whole body cast he'll be out he'll be out in no time (laughs) all right i have saved the best for last here uh, this one comes from uh, Vela Club member Stefano Sabato. He has a 2018 specialized diverge that he's mostly been using as a commuter, but he has been getting more and more into gravel riding. But as he is doing that, he's finding that, I mean, granted, this is the somewhat older specialized with older geometry. He's finding that the relatively short front center on that bike to be a little bit unnerving, especially given that he has toe overlap and when he's on more challenging terrain. So he's considering adding a dropper post so he can lower his center of gravity to get a little bit more confidence in those situations, but he also doesn't want to give up the comfort you get from those flexi carbon seat posts. So if he can't have everything, should he just get something like a BMC unrestricted? That's a bike that he is looking at. Uh, so if should he just get something like that BMC that has more progressive geometry? And if he did, would he still want a dropper post? Hmm. So I'm trying to I'm trying to remember exactly what year this is. So 2018, is this the one that that only has like 34, 35 mil of tire clearance? That might be the generation before. I have a feeling it's the middle I, one. Oh, I don't know. Or is I mean, the one after that? Yeah, I it, think it's so. it, it's hard to say because he he's not a hundred percent sure on the mm. on the year of that bike. But gotcha. either way, I mean he. Either way, the front center is short enough that he has toe overlap, which yeah. is right, an issue. Right, right. So Zach actually has one of these <laughs> um, and has run into a number of sort of weird geometry. This is definitely a, a, kind of the early days of gravel bikes when this is kind of basically a cross bike with a different bottom bracket drop. Uh, yeah, you, you're definitely going to run into issues. So first and foremost, yes, you will like you will like a gravel bike with modern geometry. I think that they're just more fun. They, they just work better. I'm very sold on... These sort of like very slightly slacker, uh, you know, kind of trending toward the mountain bike space kind of kind of gravel bikes. As long as you don't go as far as like the evil Shami Hagar, that's just not a, a good scene. Um, yeah, it's too far. To answer the kind of dropper question, if you get a bike with better geometry, you definitely don't need the dropper as much. Uh, I've noticed, for example, I... I've been riding two hardtails lately. One is a is a Cannondale FSI, which is kind of uh, like steeper, more aggressive, and the other is a Specialized Chisel, the new one, which is much slacker uh, and kind of more modern. And I I 
want a dropper on both, but I feel like I need the dropper less with the more modern geometry. And I think that that's probably a similar situation to what he would run into with gravel bikes uh, to the point where if you get one of the modern gravel bikes and it's a little bit sort of more stable and confidence inspiring, then the need for the dropper will diminish. There's really very few incidents, I think, where you need a dropper post on a gravel bike. Yeah. Unless you're getting air, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it really adds a whole lot to the experience. Unless you're really on the wrong honest. bike. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I was just going to say with, uh, I recently, well, not that recently, last year, I reviewed a bike, the Marin Headlands, which kind of sounds like a very similar situation. So it kind of has this older geometry issue where it's quite steep and had toe overlap and then they'd fitted a dropper post and i actually did find that the dropper post uh greatly helped descending with that bike because you could as it says get the weight back and this is something i covered in my review of that bike um but it doesn't as kaylee says it doesn't fix the fundamental issue that the geometry is not as good as it can be uh and yeah getting that more stable geometry is is better than trying to adapt a a twitchy bike to be you know yeah because you yeah. you lose the comfort too we've yeah. talked about that a bunch of times yeah. that like it makes a dramatic difference in the in the feel of a bike yeah. uh particularly a bike where you're going to be seated over kind of rough surfaces a lot like it, it makes a huge difference to putting that dropper on there which is basically zero flex because if you have flex out of a dropper the dropper's not going to work very well no. right yeah. <laughs> so yeah I, I personally if you've got the budget and you're thinking about a new bike anyway now's a good time like geometry it seems to have kind of settled a little bit again uh, it's not accelerating quite like it was in the last couple of years and now is probably a good time for for maybe a new bike uh if not chuck a dropper on the specialized like they're not that expensive you can find some cheaper ones uh the cheaper ones don't tend to be all that much less reliable maybe a little bit heavier Give it a go. Yeah, maybe maybe it solves it for you. And if you're there is there are a couple of droppers now that add a bit of comfort into the into the equation. So P and W makes one which has a bit of sag in it. Um, so if you're not hypersensitive or, or sort of performance orientated in your riding, where you where you'd feel that change in saddle height as you pedal, then that may be a nice compromise. Um, personally, I think that style of drop would annoy me, but that's just me. My the bike that I have for the $400 gravel bike challenge mm -hmm. came with a suspension seat post. Ooh. It's, it's oh, awesome. U yeah. USE. I remember that one. I used I'm to have one. all about it. I am. I'm into it. Bring back the dropper, or the, the suspension seat post. It's so good. It's <laughs> you, you have to, um, yeah, you have to be okay with changes in saddle height, <laughs> but, but it's great when you hit a bump. So yep. it's pretty yep. firm. So like it doesn't really bob much, you know, just from pedal action. Mm. But when you whack something, it's great. Yeah. Big well, fan. I dare, Bring it back. I dare say, I dare say USC still makes elastomers for that thing. Mm. So. Oh, man. You you may still, you may be able to still do some tuning with that thing. Uh, and there are other brands <laughs> yeah, out there indeed, making modern indeed. suspension seat posts. So it's not, uh, it's not a dead technology. Yeah. So anyway. Stefano, um, back to your question, however, I'm kind of more inclined. I mean, I, I, I'm generally, you know, I, I know that this is my job and whatever to talk about fun, cool new bike stuff, but I'm, I'm generally not super into the whole like N plus one, like just go buy in a, a new bike whenever you have even a slight excuse to get one sort of mentality. Um, but in this sort of situation, I mean, I, I am big on the idea that if the geometry of your bike isn't what you want it to be, there is virtually nothing you can do 
to make it what you want it to be. It's sort of like, like I always use the, use the analogy. <clears throat> I always use the analogy of like buying a house. It's like, if you buy a house that's in a really terrible location, you can make that house really, really awesome, but it is still going to be in a terrible location. <laughs> so along, along those lines, if you're having issues with your old diverge, particularly in terms of toe clip overlap, I mean, getting your center of gravity lower would give you more confidence. But yes, as Kaylee mentioned, it would absolutely kind of kill the comfort of that bike. Um, Dave and I both rode that BMC unrestricted quite a bit at field test last year. We both really, really liked that bike. I think BMC has overall done a really good job on that. It's, I mean, it's definitely a little quirky. Um, but one thing, another bike you could look at that also has progressive geometry that would not be quite as expensive is the Da Vinci Hatchet. Um, da Vinci's done a really good job on the uh, on the geometry of that bike. It is not terribly expensive. I mean that that kind of lower end one that I tested a few months ago. Honestly, is one of my favorite gravel bikes that I've tested in a really really long time, uh, for a variety of reasons. But the just the geometry of that bike is just really dialed. I mean, it's a relatively long front end. It doesn't steer like doesn't steer like a truck. Um, it's still a fast bike. It's really comfortable. Uh, like I said, it doesn't really cost a ton of money. It's not gimmicky. It doesn't have any like suspension rear end like that BMC. So I would take a good look at that as well. The new Diverge is a pretty darn good bike too, actually. Uh, and hits some of the geometry issues that you're running into with the current Diverge, uh, with your current Diverge. It does. And it still has that future shock front end, which does work. Uh, and then it has an even lower seat cluster. So you have even more seat posts showing on like the rod quality on that bike that, you know, specialized has, they have admittedly done a really good job on that one. Yep. Lots of options. So I guess that would be our suggestion then. So you can try a dropper post if you want to, but I don't think it's going to do a whole lot. So, you know, it sounds like you're already considering a new bike. And in this case, I feel like you have pretty good motivation to go ahead and buy one. So I would go look at a new bike. Yay bikes. <laughs> and with that, that will wrap up this episode of Nerd Alert, which if you didn't if you didn't catch our announcement in the last episode, we are now in a weekly format for Nerd Alert. This is something that we have been considering for quite a long time. We are going to be alternating between uh, sort of like group discussion formats like this one, which is kind of what we've been doing all this time for Nerd Alert. And then we're going to be switching that up every other week with a more deep dive into particular subjects. Uh, so next week we'll be in deep dive mode and we will be back next week with another episode. So make sure you stay tuned and hopefully you set a, set a little bit of the time aside because we are going to be coming at you now twice as often as we used to. Dun, dun, dun. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, thanks for listening. We'll see you next Bye, week. Bye everybody.